In today's fitness pain-free show, we are going over a case study of someone who had Achilles tendinopathy. Let's do it. First and foremost, thank you. Thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. My name is Dan Pope. I'm a physical therapist, coach, personal trainer, and meathead. I love all things fitness. This is the Fitness Pain-Free Show, where we help coaches and physical therapists like you get your patients and clients out of pain and back to training in the gym where they belong. If you're watching this on YouTube, help me out by hitting that like button, comment, and subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to this via podcast, leave me a positive rating and review. It helps a ton. Thanks, and let's get rolling. If you want to support me that extra step further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. It's a comprehensive educational resource and toolkit for the fitness and rehab professional. Think Netflix, but for trainers and physical therapists. People ask me all the time, what's the next step I can take with you, Dan, to learn more? Well, this is it. It is premier content from myself. I've been making this for the past five plus years or so. Uh, we've got 100 plus webinars, ebooks, complete guides. I update this once a month, like I said. You have access to a private Facebook group. Have all your questions answered by me. You can decide upcoming podcast topics and you can get started for just $1. After that, it's $12.99 per month. It's nice and cheap. You can cancel anytime. So head over to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, and then click on Fitness Pain-Free Insiders Online Library. I'll also leave a link in the show notes so you can check it out. So here's what I want you to do next. I've created an infographic. It's a PDF. It's about seven pages long about evidence-based treatment for Achilles tendinopathy. I've done all the hard work for you. I've gone through the literature and created a really easy-to-digest infographic, seven-page-long PDF. It's going to teach you all the basics about how to work with patients that have Achilles tendinopathy, how to get them out of pain, and train in the gym. So I will leave a link in the show notes. Definitely click on that and then download it. It's all free. All right. It's going to help elevate your game and working with these patients. All right. So you guys probably know the drill by now. If you don't, when I do these case studies, I try to do it in the traditional SOAP format, subjective, objective, assessment, and plan. Okay. So it's relevant for physical therapists treating folks that have these pain problems. In this case, Achilles tendinopathy. Okay. So who are we dealing with right here? Right. Who, who is this patient who has Achilles tendinopathy? So this is a patient that's actually um, a couple years back I worked with her. Um, and I think that's good uh, simply because I was able to see her progress over the course of time and give you a little feedback about how things did, right? But it's a former patient of mine. Saw her a few years ago. Uh, she continues to run to this day, doing fairly well. Uh, she's a 39-year-old female. She's a recreational runner, which basically to me means that she's not competitive. Her whole life doesn't revolve around trying to run a faster 10K time or 5K time. And she runs three to four times per week. Three of those sessions are going to be 30 to 60 minutes. And it's mostly flat training. So think about roads locally. And then one time per week, she finds some sort of trail to run on, right? Oftentimes she's driving to New Hampshire uh, areas that have a lot of hills and she runs that. So one times a week, she does trail runs. And this is going to be a little bit more relevant a little bit later as I start discussing polarized training. But generally speaking, every single run that she does, she just goes out there and runs as hard as she's able to, all right, which is very common for most runners, okay? She also does some recreational strength training. It's mostly for her own health, but also so she can continue doing some running over the course of time. Uh, that's two times per week. Uh, funny enough, she does no calf strength training, which is fairly common with most runners I see. They just pretty much ignore the calves, right, despite the foot and ankle getting injured all the time, right? So she does have a bit of a competitive season, uh, which essentially she likes to do Spartan races. She likes to do tough mutters. And typically she does these towards the end of summer 
or the fall. So it's kind of her competitive season. So despite her not being super competitive, she's fairly competitive in the sense that she just wants to try to increase her ability to run faster over the course of time, enjoy these races, right? So she's had Achilles tendon pain for the past eight years, okay? Um, and this is not uncommon, right? You might think eight years, well, that's a long time, but these tendon issues tend to be recurrent and they tend to kind of stick around for long periods of time and just rear their ugly heads every once in a while. So despite that seeming like a long period of time in my head, I was like, okay, well, my Achilles has been hurting off and on for about the same two. So it makes sense. It shouldn't be too scary for you. She's currently in a flare-up, okay? And the left side is a little worse than the right side, although both Achilles currently hurt, all right? What activities aggravate the Achilles? So runs, especially over three to four miles, really kill. And this is mostly the next day. Uh, running in generally, in general, excuse me, actually hurts quite a bit. So it's not just these longer runs, it's it's any form of running. But at this point, the longer the run, the worse it is usually. She also has a lot of pain in the Achilles with the first few steps in the morning. This is another very common thing that folks with Achilles tendon pain will say. She also has pain after rising from a seated position. So let's say she goes down for work and she's at the computer for a couple hours, stands up, takes a few steps, and ouch, that pain hurts kind of warms up after you take a few steps and then you don't notice it quite as much. And she has more pain during trail runs. Uh, a little bit more on this later, but it might be that softer surface, the sand and dirt she's running on that's giving her trouble, or it could be the hills, or it could be that she's running faster. We're not really sure, uh, but suffice to say, the trail runs hurt the worst, okay? In terms of her career, she's not working manual labor. She works in real estate and she's fairly active throughout the course of the day. So that's a good thing, right? Uh, she's very busy with her work, but she definitely prioritizes her health, which is amazing from a physical therapy perspective. So we can count on her to actually do her exercises, which is good. And she's also disciplined. So she's been following a running program and also following her own strength and conditioning program for years and years. And if I can make her rehab kind of like her conditioning and strengthening she's doing right now, I think we're gonna have a lot of success. Okay. How about her training age? How long has she been running for and how long has she been strength conditioning for? Well, she's really been running for the majority of her adult life. Okay. And I would kind of classify her as recreationally competitive. Okay. There's some folks that just kind of run for fun and for health and they don't care how fast they run whatsoever. They just kind of go out the door and run for 30 minutes and come back and they never, ever think about how fast they're going or how competitive they are. Right. And then you have the other end of the spectrum that all they think about is their marathon time, you know, their 5K time, their 10K time. And they're constantly trying to get those times down. They have a long competitive season. They're thinking about trying to improve this all the time. She's not there. She's somewhere in between the two, right? So she's not super competitive, but she does like to improve how fast she runs. All right. I call that recreationally competitive. Uh, has she been to any other doctors or physical therapists? And yes, she's actually been to a few physical therapists and she hasn't been able to find any long-term relief, okay? She's had this recurrent pain, which we know actually occurs in Achilles tendinopathy. It's unfortunate, right? We'd like to think that we can get rid of it and it'll never come back. Uh, it seems not to be the case, or at least we don't know how to do that at this point based on the research that we do have available. But one of the things I think about when a patient comes in after having multiple treatments from multiple providers is, okay, something didn't work with these last providers right? What did they do? Okay. Why don't you think it worked? And what are your goals for me specifically, right? PT didn't work in the past. Why are you trying physical therapy with me? What are your expectations? So I want to make sure that we meet those expectations. We're not just doing the same thing that didn't work in the past 
for the physical therapist, or excuse me, for the patient, right? So what were the patient goals? I always ask patient goals in the initial evaluation. Uh, obviously, she wanted to reduce her pain. That makes sense. Most patients want that. She also wants to be able to return back to running. She's currently trying to run, but it feels god awful. So she's stopped right now. She also has several competitions she's signed up for. It is currently the spring time in this initial evaluation. And she has a few competitions she's like to do. I think she has some Spartan races as well as Tough Mudders, some big ones coming up. She wants to be able to do that, right? And then the last piece is that she's been dealing this for eight years, right? It's a long time. She would love to reduce recurrence rates. Can we do that, right? Is that something that's possible? So now we start doing our objective examination and what did we find? So from a strength standpoint, and usually I am doing calf raises when I'm assessing this, she has pain, right? And that makes sense. Folks that have Achilles tendon pain, it tends to hurt with loading. And the heavier the loading, the faster the loads are applied, usually the worse the pain is. And that was the case for her. So basically, double leg calf raise, she felt a little bit. Single leg calf raise, she felt it more. If we jump on one leg, that's the worst. Okay? And that's a good way to kind of rule in Achilles tendinopathy. If we looked at her range of motion, it was actually quite poor, right? So we did a half kneeling, uh, toe-to-wall, ankle dorsiflexion test. And what we found is that she had zero degrees, or excuse me, uh, zero inches from the wall. Not zero degrees, but she wasn't able to get her toe away from the wall and still have her knee touch the wall without the heel popping up. That's actually quite limited because we'd like to see closer to three or four inches. Uh, she's not particularly tall, right? So three inches or so would be more along the lines of normal for her, but she was way off of that, okay? And we actually, you know, spoiler alert, we ended up treating that, uh, but I don't know if that's kind of like a red flag for me. I don't see that mobility issue and think, oh, that's why your Achilles tendons are so painful, but maybe it's a contributor. I'm not sure, okay? How about the rest of our evaluation? Did she have anything from a regional interdependence standpoint that was maybe related to her Achilles tendon pain? Well, when she lunged, as well as doing a single-legged squat, and then also a bridge with marching, she had pretty poor pelvic control. And what do I mean by that? So when she tried to do a lunge, she had a lot of hip drop, right? So we noted that the contralateral hip dropped when she went to a lunge, all right? And when we did a bridge, so bring the hips up in the air and then try to pick up one leg, that leg that was picked up, the hip will drop substantially. And she actually had some, some trouble controlling that. Okay. We were seeing the same thing during a single legged squat. So when she tried to do a single leg squat, we were seeing a lot of hip drop. All right. Now she could be getting that hip drop because she has poor quad strength, right? Maybe she doesn't have the best strategy from her hips. This could also be from the calf mobility issues. So when you see these things, you can't automatically assume, you know, it's from a weak hip. All right. Cause I think that's oftentimes what we think as clinicians, you do a lunge, look at that hip drop. That's a weak hip, all right? Maybe, but maybe not, all right? And lastly, looking at her shoes and her shoe preference, I am not the expert when looking at a shoe to see the wear and to tell you exactly what's wrong with your running, okay? But what I will say is that she's been wearing minimalist shoes for a long period of time. At one point, she switched over to minimalist shoes, um, and we'll talk a bit about why this might not be the best for her, at least at the moment, in a bit, right? So next we got her on a treadmill and we did a running analysis. Okay. So the first thing I noticed is that she's a four foot runner. So she actively tries to touch the ground with each stride with the front of her foot. Right. And she's done this for the past 
15 or so years for as long as she can kind of remember with her running. And it's something that she naturally did. Uh, we do know that if you're adopting more of a forefoot strike as compared to a rear foot strike, that does increase stress on the Achilles tendon. So something that just perked my interest. Uh, what I will say is that we didn't end up changing her foot strike pattern because we didn't find that we needed to over the course of time. And I want you to keep this in mind as a physical therapist, because when you have a patient that runs on the treadmill and you notice something that's maybe related to their pain, doesn't mean right away that you have to change their running pattern. Because when you start doing that, you may end up stressing other structures that don't have the capacity or low tolerance, right? You may cause more problems than, than fix problems, right? Keep that in mind. The other thing I noticed that she's very bouncy. She's a lot of vertical displacement. And that might end up putting a little bit more stress through that Achilles tendon. Okay. What was also interesting is watching her walk or excuse me, watching her run and then looking at the hips. She didn't have that same hip drop that I noticed in the lunge, right? In the single legged squat. So what's interesting is that we don't have that same carryover as a physical therapist. You see that in a single leg squat, you might think automatically, wow, that hip drop is going to be contributing to the problems during your running. But when we get on the treadmill, I didn't see that. Okay. So I didn't feel the need to address that because the most important thing that she can't handle right now is running and she's not having issues during running. Did I cure up a little bit when we we're doing lunges and squats in the gym? Yes. And she was able to change that issue pretty quickly. Uh, however, I didn't see that with her running. Okay. Next thing I'd like to take a look at is cadence. So we use the run cadence app developed by Chris Johnson. Basically you open the app, turn it on three, two, one, go. You run for 60 seconds with your phone in your hand and it tells you your cadence. And I asked my patient to run at your normal training speed. Okay. And what we found is that her cadence was around 160. Okay. And generally speaking, that's a bit on the low end. Uh, what were we basing that off of? Generally speaking, most elite runners are going to be at least 180 steps per minute, pretty much at all race speeds. So marathon all the way down to like 100 meter dash, they're going to be 180 or more. Okay. And this is probably not optimal for all speeds, but suffice to, excuse me, suffice to say a slower cadence is going to increase stress on the Achilles tendon. So we can increase the cadence and reduce stress on the Achilles tendon. And that's actually what we ended up doing. Okay. Going back to this idea of altering technique, I didn't change technique too much, but when you alter cadence, you're probably adopting more of a midfoot strike over a forefoot strike. You're changing step length. And through those variables, we're probably, uh, excuse me, decreasing a little stress on the Achilles tendon. At the end of the day, I want my uh, patients to be running as soon as possible while respecting the injured area and allowing them to get better over the course of time. All right. So in my mind, I'm thinking, can we change the running technique up a little bit or some of these variables from a program perspective in a way that allows her to continue training? Because that's the best case scenario. So in terms of imaging, we didn't have any um, imaging available. Uh, however, we don't necessarily need imaging nor need to roll in Achilles tendinopathy and help these patients. If you want to see an evidence-based guideline to when you may need imaging or not, I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll also have you click it up here. I'm so bad at pointing to the right area. So if you're watching this on YouTube, the link's right there. It's also in the show notes. If you're watching the podcast version, just head over to the show notes. You'll be able to see that and listen to it. Okay. In terms of palpation, what did we notice? 
So she had tenderness to palpation on the Achilles, the mid portion Achilles. So I don't think this was an insertional Achilles tendinopathy. All right. And it hurt on both sides. The other piece is that there was more thickening on the left side versus the right side. Okay. So maybe a little more tendinopathy on the left side doesn't necessarily mean the tendinopathy on the left side is going to take longer to get better. All right. However, that's what I noticed. In terms of special tests, she actually had some hip pain, some hip irritation. So bilaterally, she had a positive failure as well as Faber, right? Now, this wasn't the primary thing that this patient wanted me to focus on. However, we did actually treat this over the course of time with some hip strengthening, and this did improve over the course of time. So was the hip kind of related to the Achilles? Maybe. I'm not sure, but I wanted to make sure I was comprehensive in my treatment, okay? Now, in terms of diagnosis, bilateral Achilles tendinopathy with the left being a little bit worse than the right side, okay? Makes sense. She probably had a little bit of FAI as well, femoral acetabular impingement. Uh, and this is not the subject we're going to be going on over today, but I'll, sh I'll show you a little bit about how we treated both over the course of time. Maybe they were related, right? So what's our decision-making at this point, okay? We did our evaluation. Does she need to go back to the doctor? Does she need surgery? No, she doesn't need to go back to the doctor. She does need to get surgery. The best thing for her, I believe, is going to be some sort of conservative management. I would say the research supports this as well. We want to try to do at least 12 weeks of strengthening or active treatment because we know that an active treatment is going to be better than just wait and see. We're doing nothing. All right. And the other piece is that it takes time to make progress. So at least 12 weeks in order to see some sort of improvement. And the other part is that we can trial some other treatments if there's no progress. Okay. And again, if you want to see some other treatments and also some differential diagnosis, which we'll talk about in a second, you can see the evidence-based guide to Achilles tendinopathy. I'll put that link in the show notes and I'll also allow you to click on it right here. Okay. So if they are not improving over the course of time, so if she is not able to get back to running, the pain doesn't change whatsoever over the course of 12 weeks, we'll send them back to the doctor to consider other um, diagnosis that maybe we're missing, right? Or she could potentially try some shockwave therapy, orthobiologics, or some other forms of treatment, okay? But that's not the first line of treatment. That's somewhere down the line, okay? So again, if you want to check out the evidence-based guide to Achilles tendinopathy, that was my last fitness pain-free show. I'll put the link in the show notes. You can check that out. So what's our plan of care? What are we doing? So first and foremost, we're going to educate about Achilles, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to educate about Achilles tendinopathy, all right? What is a tendinopathy? Also, we're going to talk about load management. So we know for these Achilles, uh, we think the reason why they get hurt is because of overuse, doing too much too soon. And the other piece is that we probably need to be slow and progressive with a rehab. We need at least probably 12 weeks of rehab, and it should be a slow progression of strength over the course of time. Okay. We utilize the acute to chronic workload ratio when making decisions, which is basically something that Tim uh, Gabbett popularized. It means that we have to slowly prepare the tendon for the stress that we want to throw at it eventually, which is going to be running through the trails, doing a tough mutter, okay? Because that's what the patient wants to get back to. We address any sort of psychosocial issues. So in general, I didn't notice a lot that this patient was kind of talking to me about. I wasn't noticing much of it. Uh, I do like to educate patients on pain, not equaling damage. And generally speaking, it's okay to push through a little bit of pain. That's not a bad thing right? Uh, the other thing is that I think this patient had some expectations that weren't necessarily realistic, right? So in the past, she hadn't had the most success with physical therapy. In reality, she actually did have some success. She did get better. She just wasn't 100% better, right? We know through most of the medical literature that not all folks are going to get 100% better. 
despite having the best treatment. So I just had to educate that a little bit to the patient. All right. What's the next step? We want to calm the area down. Now, there's a lot of different ways to do this. The way I chose to do this is the decision-making process between the patient and myself and how they present is that we wanted to alter her running biomechanics a little bit, her running programming, which we'll get to in a bit, as well as her shoe wear, okay? Because I want her to be able to continue training, and I want to simultaneously rehabilitate the injury. And if I alter some of these things, I think that we can accomplish this. You know, spoiler alert, but this was a success. We did have some success doing these things, right? Um, we also did a few um, modifications in her lifestyle to reduce some of the hip pain that she was experiencing, right? So sitting was something that was problematic for her. That's something that gives people with FAI trouble. Often, we limited the amount of sitting that she did throughout the course of the day, broke up her sitting throughout the course of the day. When she had to sit, we made sure we sit in a nice high seat. We would slouch a little bit to reduce some of the stress on the front side of the hip. And when she sits, having a little space between her knees, which is nice because it's going to offload the hip some so you can make some progress from that perspective. Okay. What else did we do? Well, we strengthened the calf using a progressive strengthening program. As we got stronger, we had a slow progression back to running, utilizing a return to run program, which we'll talk about. Then we had some modification of training in the long term, and we utilized polarized training or 80-20 training, which we'll talk about in a bit. We also tried to periodize her training throughout the course of the year so she's not running hard year-round, giving some time for that Achilles to kind of chill in the off-season. Okay? If we weren't successful, we're going to refer out to a doctor. We never had to, so that was great. And lastly, we also treated some of the hip issues. Were they related to Achilles pain? I'm not sure. At the end of the day, both got better, right? So how do we modify running? One of the basic principles I like to use with my patients is any activity that's below about a 5 out of 10 pain-wise is probably acceptable for Achilles tendinopathy. And this is based on one study, which link in the show notes if you want to check it out, reference number four, where... They had runners with Achilles pain and put them in two groups. One group was not allowed to train through pain, run through pain at all. They were unloaded. Okay. They weren't allowed to run. The second group was allowed to continue running, but they weren't allowed to have more than a five out of 10 pain while running. So they had a six week period of unloading in the first group. The other group took six weeks of running with less than five out of 10 pain. And the long-term outcomes were the same. Okay. So if you're okay running with a bit of pain, you're probably not going to delay your recovery or recover any less fast, okay, if you run through a little bit of pain. So 5 out of 10 for me seems a little high. When I am running and my Achilles hurts that bad, it's it's a bit of a red flag, kind of pops up in my head. Uh, but this is what the literature shows. So I try to follow that guideline with my patients, and I definitely follow this guideline with her, okay? Because at the end of the day, we don't want to stop running. There's a myriad of health benefits, and injury is a major threat to continuing exercise. That's the last thing we want to do. On top of that, we hit two birds with one stone because the patient actually wants to run. So if they come to you and say, I stopped running, I want to get back to running, and you say, no problem, let's start running again, they're going to be happy, especially if you can get them better at the same time. Pretty cool. Okay. What do we alter from a running technique perspective? Well, we changed cadence. And we bumped it up to around 170, 175, because we know a faster cadence can reduce some of that Achilles tendon stress, right? Uh, remember, she's a four-foot striker. I didn't change that at all. I mean, if she was having 
long-term issues that weren't resolving whatsoever, no matter what we threw at her, then I would consider that. But that wasn't the first thing on my mind. I don't want to change too much, right? I don't want to throw a major wrench in her training that hurts something else. Okay. In terms of shoe wear, I actually recommended she try a cushioned shoe. Uh, and she had a few at home. She just hadn't worn them in a bit and she gave it a shot. What was actually kind of nice is that at that point with a faster cadence, right? Slowing down the speeds a little bit, running was actually quite tolerable. So I didn't feel the need to change much more. But one of the pieces of advice I did give is that if you aren't able to run with all of this advice, right? You still have a ton of pain. Let's potentially try a heel lift, right? So a soft kind of insert the back of the heel, um, tends to be helpful in folks with Achilles tendinopathy, but at the end of the day, she never needed to. So we didn't have to change foot strike and we didn't have to add a heel lift. We were able to reduce pain just by changing programming and altering cadence, right? Which is great. So like I said, what we did do is change her running programming. And what that was, was adding a return to run program, which we'll talk about in a second. But the guideline was, Hey, I don't want your pain to be above about a five out of 10 while you're training and you should feel like the next day you're about back to baseline. Okay. And that's what we had used over the course of time. We slowly built up volume. I think a good rule of thumb is to ramp up your volume before ramping up intensity, higher intensity, faster speed, simply put, puts more stress through the Achilles tendon. So I want to try to increase the volume before ramping up that intensity. Okay. The other thing that's important is that you might want to figure out what ends up hurting your patient. So some patients can actually run for long periods of time, high volumes without any pain. And as soon as they turn on the intensity, it starts to hurt. Now you'll also have some patients where they tolerate intensity, but it's the volume that hurts. They won't start hurting until they get to minute 20 or 25 in some of their long runs. So you can also make the argument that you want to try to taper down or take back some of the stresses that are causing pain in the first place, and not automatically assume it's an intensity problem over volume issue. Okay. Over the course of time, we transitioned to an 80-20 program, otherwise known as polarized training. We had a very slow buildup of intensity after we ramped up the volume some, okay? The next thing we altered some was running surfaces. Now, if you remember, she was hurting when she was doing her trail runs. Now, this certainly could be because it's a longer run, right? Could also be because there's hills. Maybe she runs a little bit faster. But the other piece is that it's a softer surface. We have a little bit of conflicting data that shows running on a softer surface can increase your risk of getting Achilles tendinopathy. So if you're running on a softer surface, it might be increasing some of the stress on the Achilles, and the Achilles doesn't like it. So initially, we started off her running on a harder surface, right? So road running. And then over the course of time, we progressed towards softer running, trail running. We also eliminated hills initially, right? And then over the course of time, we introduced that back slowly. So in terms of strength training, we want to load the area, especially the Achilles, but really entire train, or excuse me, chain. I wrote her entire lower body strength program. Uh, oftentimes I'll work with trainers, personal trainers, strength coaches, where we're talking to the strength coach and kind of telling them what to do and not to do. This wasn't the case. She doesn't have a strength coach. She doesn't have a personal, personal trainer. I wrote the entirety of her lower body program. Okay. So what did this program look like? Generally speaking, two times per week, we're doing compound movements. What does that mean? Split squats, single-legged squats, step-ups, single-legged deadlifts, heel taps. When we were able to, we emphasize running posture with our strength training exercises. So if I can strengthen the muscles I want, make those exercises specific to running, 
That's going to be two birds with one stone, right? We want to do that. Next, we do isolation work to the calf or the Achilles. We we're doing this three times per week. So that was calf raises. That was heel float work, uh, direct strengthening for the calf, as well as compound movements that put the calf in a position where it's the weakest link. So it has to work really hard. Okay. We also focus on the hip musculature. Remember this patient had some FAI. We focus on clams, abduction, side planks, flexion, and adduction, right? So Copenhagen planks. And keep in mind, there was a lot of hip drop during exercise, which might've been aggravating the FAI symptoms. So we tried to clean those up. And over the course of time, hip pain did go down some, right? Eventually, we did more plyometric activity. Think about running. It's a lot of low-level plyometrics over and over and over again. Incorporating plyos into your rehab program is a good idea because that's specific to what your athlete wants to get back to, okay? We're doing that two times per week. How do we progress things over the course of time? From a calf perspective, we started with double leg calf exercises, and we progressed to single leg calf exercises over the course of time, and then we added load, okay? You can also go from high reps down to low reps because it's not so hard to use a light weight and do high reps for the Achilles. As soon as we add more load, it gets harder, and you have to decrease the reps, all right? We also started on a flat surface, so doing calf raises on a flat surface, and we progressed our way off the edge of a step. Now, I would be more cautious with this if there was an insertional Achilles tendinopathy, uh, but there wasn't. It was mid-portion, so we could go pretty quickly into calf raises off a step as long as it's well-tolerated. In terms of strength training compound movements, I'm a big fan of heel float work, which is basically doing, let's say, a step-up or lunge where half of your foot is off the box, right, or the front of the foot is elevated slightly, and you're doing a, a lunge or a step-up pretty much on the ball of your foot. It puts a little more stress on the calf and the Achilles, right? I'm also a big fan of sled work to get ready for eventual plyometrics. I feel like the position is very similar to acceleration and running, and we're getting some good stress through the calf, through the Achilles in a way that's pretty specific to running, right? Without having that same speed of impact that you'll see in a plyometric, right? And if you want to see my favorite physical therapy exercises, I'll put a link in the show note. I made a video about this. I'll also put it right up here if you want to check it out on YouTube. Alrighty. After we were tolerating the strength program really well, I start putting plyometrics into the program, right? So as soon as your athlete is able to tolerate plyometrics, I'd, I'd uh, recommend introducing a little bit at a low level, right? We started introducing plyometrics maybe two to four weeks after starting the strength program. My general rule of thumb is that physical therapy is kind of like making soup. You add a little salt, you taste it. Does it need more? Okay, put a little more. Taste it again. Does it need a little more? You keep on adding. Big thing is that we don't want to put too much salt in the soup right away. So I generally start with some strengthening. How's the strengthening going? Going well. All right, let's try some plyometrics. How are the plyometrics going? Good. All right, let's make the plyometrics harder. So we slowly increase over the course of time. We start with double leg plyometrics. We progress to single legged plyometrics. Initially, the jumps are more based around building capacity or tolerance. So I'm not trying to jump super high initially. I'm just trying to get the tendon used to that loading. I'll increase the volume a little bit over the course of time. As we're tolerating that well, we'll make the jump intensity a little bit higher. We'll focus more on power in terms of intent as opposed to just getting through the repetitions. Okay. We progress from single plane jumping to multiple plane movement, which may not be as important for runners, but if you were trying to get back to, let's say soccer or a field sport, I'd, I'd say that's incredibly important. Right. And lastly, I think plyometrics are sometimes a good way to sink the ship. What do I mean by that? 
So some folks just don't tolerate uh, plyometrics especially well. Uh, keep in mind, if you have a runner and you're having them run, they are doing plyometrics. So if you have them on a run program, plus you're doing a lot of strengthening, and then you're doing plyometrics on top of that, that's a lot of stress, and you may not even need that. Okay, so keep that in mind. So for a lot of my athletes, I don't even use plyos. And in the rehab of my own Achilles, I found that anytime I put in too many plyos, it sets me back. All right. So you have to be really careful with this. And also keep in mind that you are getting some plyometrics if you have them on a run program already. Okay. Lastly, if you want to see my plyometric uh, progressions, you can go ahead and click here. Right. And then if you're listening to this on the podcast version, I'll put a link in the show notes. I made a video of all my favorite plyos. Next, we're going to talk a little about mobility. So the only thing that really stood out in this patient from a mobility perspective is that she had really poor ankle dorsiflexion range of motion, okay? Now, I don't know why. I think sometimes with runners, they do so much running, it's so much stress on the calf and Achilles that over the course of the time, it might get stiff, especially because when you're running, you're not taking the calf through a full range of motion. Maybe this is why she was so stiff. I'm not sure. At the end of the day, I'm not sure that we needed to increase mobility in order to get out of pain either. However, it was such a big deficit. Like I said, it was, it was really limited. I figured we'd try to work on it some. So how did we do this? Five times per week, we did some soft tissue work, so foam rolling, followed by static stretching for the gastroc and the soleus, 60 seconds, and then eccentrics off the edge of a step with a full stretch at the very bottom of the movement for around 6 to 10 reps. Okay. We focused, like I said, both on the gastroc and the soleus, and she did make some improvement over the course of time. I think she gained one or two inches, right? Wasn't a ton. She was still less than the average person, but like I said, she got better. And I don't know if this was a, a really important factor to address in the first place, right? Definitely not the lowest hanging fruit when I saw her come in. So what did the return to running program look like? And I got to be honest, I steal most of my running specific stuff from a guy named Chris Johnson. Okay. He's a phenomenal running PT. I'm actually having him on the podcast next week. So we're going to ask him a whole bunch of running related stuff a little bit later. So stay tuned for that. But anyway, our return to running protocol was three days per week. So I think Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we want to have one day's rest in between sessions. Okay. Uh, we were trying to do a 15 minute session. And then what happens is we ramp up running over the course of time for the first week. We're doing 30 seconds of a jog, so like a 3 out of 10 intensity jog, nice and easy. Don't sprint, followed by 30 seconds of a walk. You repeat this for 15 minutes. Week two, 40-second jog, 20-second walk. Week three, 50-second jog, 10-second walk. And then week four, we're just running 15 minutes straight, all right? Now, you can make this last a little longer, this run-walk formula, if your patient is not tolerating running very well, but we didn't need to, we did, you know, just fine. It was very straightforward rehab. I'll say, okay, no big flare. So we had to stop or, you know, make this a lot easier. There's no difficulty transitioning from run, walk to straight running. Okay. Very straightforward. And then at week five, we just started adding two to three minutes of running every session until we were back at the level she wanted to be at time-wise which is somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes, right? She's a trail runner. She likes these long runs. We have to work up the volume before we introduce the intensity, right? So the next thing we talked about was something called polarized training, okay? And I'm going to kind of steal a quotation from Chris Johnson. 90% of runners get hurt 90% of the time because they run too fast too often, right? 
So most of the recreational runners I see, they put on their shoes, they go out the door, they run hard for 30 to 60 minutes, they come right back and they get back their business. They love doing that. They love running hard. It just feels good, right? So what happens is they're always working at this kind of moderate threshold, um, moderate intensity. Uh, some of the research will call this between threshold training, all right? So they're never really operating at, let's say, aerobic threshold, right, or lactate threshold or above lactate threshold. They're kind of in between all the time, okay? Now, Chris's thought is basically that these runners are actually running too fast most of the time, and then they're also not running fast enough for periods of time as well for optimal performance, right? Now, this literature is mixed, and I am not an expert here, right? We can ask Chris some more questions about this a little bit later. However, if you follow a periodized approach with polarized training, which is an 80-20 split, your improvements in things like VO2 max, lactate threshold, training, right, 5K time, 10K time, um, you will do as well or better than someone that just runs moderate, mid-intensity all the time, okay? So here's a thought. If you're running too fast all the time, that might be too much stress in your Achilles tendon. And you can actually do a lot more low-speed, slow runs, which are going to be a little bit more friendly on the tendon, okay, coupled with a little bit of higher-intensity work, which is higher in the tendon, right? But overall stress on the tendon is probably less following a, a polarized approach. And the polarized approach is going to improve your performance potentially better or the same as doing the same moderate intensity all the time, like most runners already do. Okay. And here's the thing. If you start looking through the, the evidence on this, it is mixed, right? This is my personal preference. Like I said, Chris likes polarized training. It's one of the things that I do because he likes it and I listen to him and he's very smart, uh, but I've also had a lot of progress with programming for my athletes and for myself, right? If you start to look at some of the research to see if an 80-20 split reduces your risk of injury, a research is not available yet. If you try to see if intensity or volume is what hurts folks. So if increasing your volume over the course of time is what causes injury or increasing intensity over the course of time, creating injury, doesn't seem to be any different, right? So both of those uh, groups of runners kind of get injured at the same rate. Uh, that information is coming from the, the run clever trial. If you want to check out that reference, it's in the show notes, right? But what we did over the course of time was convert our patient to a polarized running program which I think ultimately is probably going to be a little bit healthy, healthier for Achilles tendon, and potentially going to reduce recurrence rates of Achilles problems in the future for, her, which they actually did. Okay. So what is 80-20 training? What is polarized training? So it's basically 80% of your work is long, slow work, right? So this is a three out of 10 intensity. It's really, really easy. It should be conversational pace. And it kind of correlates with your aerobic threshold a bit, okay? Um, generally speaking, most folks don't like to train here because they feel like it's way too slow. But keep in mind, this is probably easier on the Achilles, and your rate of performance is probably going to be the same or better than going faster, all right? 20% of your running is going to be higher intensity. So what does that mean? About a 7 or 8 out of 10 on an RPE scale. This is also going to correlate with anaerobic threshold or above that right? These would be your tempo runs, your interval runs, or maybe your track work, all right? So only 20% of your runs fall into this category. And for a lot of folks, they, they kind of don't hit either of these. They just kind of go out and run at the fastest pace they feel like they can handle 
every single time they go out and run, right? So they're probably not running fast enough and they're probably not running slow enough, right? And that's potentially keeping them hurt over the course of time. The next thing we talked about was yearly periodization, okay? So it's important that we slowly ramp up mileage prior to your competitive season, okay? And this is going back to Tim Gabbett's acute chronic workload ratio. Also keep in mind that some of this uh, evidence is mixed, right? For runners returning back to training. It's not like if you have a spike in training, it's definitely going to hurt you, right? Um, so keep that in mind. But suffice to say, we want to try to avoid training spikes. One of the problems is that a lot of these athletes will run, 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 run for months. And then they're like, I want to go run hills. I want to go, you know, go to the mountains and run up a mountain, right? That's probably not a good way to slowly ramp into your training volume. So it's important that you start with kind of smaller hills and work your way to higher hills, right? Uh, increase the period of time on hills from, let's say, 20, 30 minutes and ramp up to your 60, 90, whatever it is. Uh, the other thing I think is really important is this idea of an off season for your runners. Basically, there's a period of time after the competitive season where you probably want to chill a little bit from a running perspective or at least change the training stimulus a little bit. Okay. So the off season might have a little bit more strength work. Maybe you're doing strength two, maybe three times a week. And then when you're in in season, you're doing one, maybe two times per week, right? Maybe in the winter time, you focus on trying to improve your 5k time, 10k time, and then your competitive season, you're working on improving your marathon performance, right? Or ultra marathon. In this case, it was more of those tough mutters, which is kind of around that marathon ish mark, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, depending on what kind of race you're doing. Right. I think the big thing is we're trying not to run really hard year round. Here's the time throughout the course of the year. We're reducing some of the stress in the Achilles. Right. So over the course of time, how did our uh, physical therapy advance and how do we approach discharge planning towards the end? Okay. So for this patient, the rehab was relatively straightforward. We're actually able to get her to run well with minimal pain over the course of time. Her pain slowly, slowly got better. And one of the things I constantly told this patient is that I know your pain is staying about the same, but you're getting stronger, you're tolerating more running, and that's improvement. And eventually what happened is that once she got to a certain amount of volume, the pain actually got a bit better, and she was able to get beyond that three to four mile mark without having terrible pain the next day. So despite her pain staying relatively constant over the course of time, she was increasing her volume, increasing her, her intensity, right? And eventually the pain followed. So it was a longer process and she had to be kind of, you know, have those expectations reined in a little bit, but ultimately she ended up in a pretty good place, right? Throughout the course of the, her training experience, I wanted her rehab to look a little bit more like a performance program, which it did, right? I also wanted to make sure she put in some more longer term calf strengthening into her programming. And this is for two reasons. So for one, I want to try to prevent future Achilles issues which unfortunately we just don't have good research to show that if you do an Achilles strengthening program, you're less likely to hurt yourself in the future. That kind of makes sense. The other piece, if you don't know about this is the calf is super important for running. It actually contributes more than the hip during most running speeds. I think it's um, going to be below like a five 30 minute mile, right? As the running speeds get higher and higher, the hip contributes more, but generally speaking for most endurance athletes, the calf is doing the majority of the work. And the other piece is that if you look at calf strength as it correlates to sprint performance, the more strength you have, generally the faster you sprint. So it makes sense. We should probably strengthen the calf and not just the hips. It's kind of this weird dogma that became popular in the running world and running culture that the hips are the most important thing. Well, 
I don't know. You can make the argument that the hips are very important, but so are the calves. Don't forget about them. Make sure that your strength and conditioning program has some calf work in it. Okay. In terms of PT visits, how often was I seeing this individual? Initially, I was seeing her one time per week, and we actually did some soft tissue work when she came in, followed up by a whole bunch of strength. We just changed her running program as well as tweaked her strength training program as she progressed, right? As she was making progress, we saw her less frequently. So we kind of went to an every other week model. And eventually, she's just feeling better and better and better. We did some education about how to change in terms of her strengthening program, we started off with three times per week worth of strength. And as she got closer to her competitive season, we actually dipped that down to one to two times per week. One of the things I use with this patient, which I tend to do with a lot of runners, is we have, I call it post-run work. Basically, you get in some of your strength training immediately after you finish your run. Okay. So I think this is logical, but it's also something that's helpful to fit these runners' schedules. So uh, runners love to run, generally speaking. They don't love the strength training. It's actually a little tougher for them to get into the gym and to prioritize training the gym, right? Now, for this athlete, she hurt as she got to higher mileage, right? So you can argue that her problem was an endurance issue, right? So now when she finishes her runs, I have her do calf strengthening immediately after the run. So the calf is being strengthened in a fatigued state, and hopefully we're increasing endurance a little bit with her, Right. The other piece is that it's kind of hard for our running athletes to get in the gym, let's say three to four times a week, do calf strengthening. They're already running three, four, five times per week. Sometimes it's just not reasonable. So what we ended up doing is decreasing the amount of times per week that she's in the gym and then doing some additional calf strengthening after her runs. Okay. So the entirety of her physical therapy experience was three months, right? Looking back, I, I kind of remember it being a little bit longer, but what was kind of cool is that she returned off and on over the next several months for other orthopedic injuries. So I got a chance to see how her calves were doing and also to kind of modify her program over the course of time. But she was actually feeling pretty good around the two-month mark, which is actually a little uncommon in comparison to the medical literature. Usually it's taken a good 12 uh, weeks or so to start seeing some solid improvement. But she got better a little faster. So it's important that you don't, you know, it's good to set expectations that this is not going to be fast. But the other piece is that it often does get better faster than that 12-week mark. Everyone's going to be an individual, right? And like I said, I was able to see her off and on for other orthopedic issues over the course of time. And she had minimal Achilles issues in the future. So largely, I think that she was a success story. Not everyone does as well as she did. But at the end of the day, she did quite well. We didn't have to change her running technique like I talked about before. We didn't have to add a heel cup, right? She was able to kind of get back to her regular strength training, regular running over the course of time with minimal issues, right? So guys, if you're interested in the references, I'll leave them right there. And lastly, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. If you are watching this on YouTube, please give me a thumbs up. I'd love to hear your comments and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. If you're watching the podcast or listening to the podcast version of this, please leave a positive rating and review. It helps me out tremendously. And lastly, if you want to go that last extra step and support me further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. It's the logical next step if you want to try to A, support me more, but also learn more about treatment of folks in the strength and fitness world, right? 
So I'll put a link in the show notes to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders, but if you head to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, and then click on Fitness Pain-Free Insiders Online Library, you can check it out. Lots of great learning. Thanks again, guys. I'll talk to you later.